keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. And I need you to be a minister for a moment and find somebody sit, sitting in your general vicinity. Look them dead in the eyes if they owe you $20. And tell them, neighbor, whatever you do, keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. It's hard to keep pushing in the world that we're living in right now. How is one supposed to find serenity and sanity and strength in the world we live in right now? Hey y'all and welcome back to the show. My Navigating Grief and Loss course is set to be held the first two Sundays in December. It's currently in the pre-sale right now. Click the link in the show notes, head over, purchase your spot. We have limited spots available and it's filling up very quickly. I hope to see you in there. This course has to do with everything about grief and loss, how we conceptualize and process grief, how we understand death. In this culture, we are taught to numb, avoid, run, self-loathe, or hide in resentment instead of taking the deep dive into our grief and processing our pain. This course will help you no matter where you are in your journey with grief and loss, whether it's losing a loved one to physical death or losing a relationship or separation or just merely wanting to understand grief and loss more and perhaps change your perspective and engage with others who are on the same journey as you. So I really hope you register. Come join us. Register now. Again, the first uh, part of the course is the first Sunday in December and then the second Sunday in December is the second part. It's a two Sunday thing. Uh, they're about two hours long, two and a half hours long, roughly, uh, for each one. Um, they're going to be held at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. All the courses are recorded via Zoom. And if you can't make it in person, if you still pay, you'll get uh, lifetime access to the recordings. That'll be emailed to you after the recording is recorded. And you'll have access to that. So even if you can't participate and be there in person, all the materials, the worksheets, um, and the group work will be mailed out to you, as well as a recording of the session, too. And as always, if you want to dive even deeper, I work with individuals and couples in a one-on-one setting, all on Zoom, all over the world. So if you're interested, I always offer a 15-minute free Zoom consultation. Just head over to www.nicobarraza.com. You can submit a request there or merely just book sessions. Um, But as always, reach out to me via the website if you want to work with me one-on-one. And I always offer a discount for a package of four sessions. One last thing, if you guys haven't gotten some gear to support the show, please consider doing so. If you head over to the website and you go to store, we have a ton of stuff available and I would love it if you purchase one or two things, take some photos of yourself in it. Please tag me on social media, share it widely. And uh, I really enjoy when people all over the world uh, post photos and share stuff uh, about the podcast. It's it's inspiring and really thoughtful. So I appreciate y'all. And if you haven't left the show a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, please consider doing so. It helps a ton. Also, you have the option to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and get one to two more episodes a week where I dive deeper into the questions all y'all ask on Instagram or perhaps some things that pop up in one-on-one client sessions, some questions that I want to talk to a broader audience. So this is really sort of the, I guess, exclusive subscribers club where you're going to get deeper work with me on some of the topics that we talk about, whether it's in the show or whether it's on Instagram or in one-on-one sessions as well too. So consider that. It's super cheap. You can subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcast. Um, it takes two seconds and and you'll be good to go. And there's already a handful of stuff recorded in the subscribers only section. This week's guest is Miss Ariel Mirendorf. Now, I don't know Ariel personally, but she has been a local in my home area of Flagstaff, Arizona for a long time now. And I came across her story online. It was shared through Facebook and I'm pretty much friends with most of the locals that are mutual friends with people I know in person. And her story was incredibly inspiring. She was diagnosed with a very rare appendix cancer um, over a year ago. And at the time she had a one, one and a half year old little boy who, uh, who is now older. Um, and what, what was incredible about Ariel's story is I believe her response to it. She was writing um, via this blog on caringbridge.org, which I'll throw a link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to her GoFundMe that has since shut down, but her GoFundMe links to her Venmo and to other uh, areas you can get involved to specifically support what's going on with her. Um, But it really was her response that inspired me. It's how she maintained sort of a level of grace of understanding within so much chaos and so much, uh, you know, uh, 
interpersonal unknown. Um, and just the way she was able to explain and write about, uh, grief, about, um, how to be there for people in a time of crisis, because oftentimes we, we get it pretty wrong. And, uh, I think she was able to explain this in an incredible way. I have an incredibly deep conversation with Ariel that I think you're really going to enjoy. It applies to, to everybody. Um, but it's a very heartfelt conversation because we talk a lot about healthcare, um, and about how, you know, being your own advocate, not only in healthcare, but through life is really the best thing you can do. Um, but you really have to understand the problems you know, that you're facing before you really can advocate for yourself in a deep way. Um, I'm really appreciative for Ariel coming on the show, taking an hour out of her day and spending it with me. I hope you go check her out. I will link to her blog, uh, karenbridge.org, that she's writing all her updates. You can read about her story there. She's an incredible writer. Please go check it out. I'm going to link to her social media and to her GoFundMe as well as her Venmo account if you want to support her that way. So without any further ado, Ariel Mirandoff. Ariel, thank you so much for joining me on Star of the Ego, Feed the Soul. Um, you are a local Flagstaffian. You're you're born and raised there, right? Not born, Not born. Okay. but, but um, mostly, mostly raised, raised. Mostly okay. raised in Flagstaff. So you're one of the the fewer, I'd say, like older locals that like I I've I've known of that are from there, right? That's, that's a transient town. And um, although we haven't met in person, I've been following your your story online now. I think probably for a couple of years, um, just based on what you've been going through, uh, because you know you're well known in the community, and I'm friends with a lot of people on Facebook that are from Flagstaff, uh, just to kind of stay tapped in. And I wanted to bring you on the show to share with everyone a little bit about your story, but I, I want to start off with, um, you know, just just admiring you for the amount of strength and courage that you've displayed on social media. And I think that just you should embody in real life because, uh, as, as everyone will find out, Ariel's going through, you know, a, a huge health thing throughout or has been going through a huge health thing, being a, a young woman, also a mother. Um, and I just feel like through your words, there's like this palpable courage that I feel like all of us could use, whether we're in a situation like that or not. So, so first off, thank you for joining me and spending some time with me. Well, thank you for having me. And th- those were nice compliments. Thank you. Certainly when you get thrust into a medical situation, you don't have any choice, but to- absolutely. So we'll get more into that. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's start there. Like, let's give us a little bit of background about, you know, your life leading up to this diagnosis. And, you know, I guess it's always hard to start these conversations, right? Like where, you know, where were you and your health wise? Because you you come from like a health and fitness background, right? So like, you know, a lot of times this is like a huge curveball out of nowhere that kind of takes, spins our life upside down. And was that, you know, what you experienced or was it something that you kind of felt brewing, you know, like where did this come from? And can you, can you set us up a little bit about like where, where you were before, I guess, pre-diagnosis? Yeah, definitely. So I've been um, a personal trainer for over a decade and, um, you know, group fitness instructor, yoga, kind of anything fitness related that doesn't involve dancing is, is, um, kind of what I've been about for, for all of my life. I grew up in a really athletic family. Um, you know, both of my parents competed in high level athletics. Um, and then I got involved in, um, bodybuilding, um, as an adult and, kind of, you know, doing high level, um, you know, weightlifting and, and bodybuilding. And so obviously thought of myself as a healthy person, um, someone who lived, you know, reasonably balanced life. I certainly talked health to my clients, uh, for, for the better part of a decade, um, for most of my adult life. And so definitely, came as a shock. Um, when I was diagnosed, I was uh, getting ready for nursing school and I started to have pain, uh, a random sharp pain with gas and bowel movements. And I thought, you know, it could be, you know, period related or, um, something like that, you know, felt kind of bloated, but thought, Oh, I'll just see, I'll just let it, you know, go for through a month and see if it's still continuing. Well, it was still continuing. So I went to a general, you know, a general well woman exam and she palpated and felt, um, it felt thickened. And so she said, let's just get an ultrasound just to see. And then the ultrasound, they couldn't even see my ovaries because there was a mask kind of enveloping both of my ovaries. And so, 
that and this was all within a few days um, that we, you know, discovered the mask, got sent to Arizona Oncology in Phoenix. As you know, Flagstaff is a very small town. We don't um, have a ton of options as far as medical care. Um, there's only one oncology clinic in Flagstaff. So um, we went down to Phoenix right away and I got kind of pushed into uh, surgery right away. We knew that the mass had grown within within eight months because I had uh, kind of a full gamut of testing done eight months prior um, with some health situations that I had at that time. And, and looking back, hindsight 2020, you know, your question, did I think it was brewing? I mean, now looking back, we see kind of these signs of, of things that weren't normal for me that mm should have been looked into more, um, could have been looked into more, but I don't, you know, also want to live my life in that space. Yeah. What, what if, because it's not, you know, it doesn't really change any part of my care moving forward. Yeah. Um, so I went into that big surgery. They ended up having to do a full hysterectomy. It was, it was one week after my 30th birthday and uh full hysterectomy took out a few lymph nodes and some of the omentum and um, kind of the peritoneal lining. And uh, then about a week later was diagnosed with stage four appendix cancer, which is really rare, like one in two million. So definitely came as a shock. Yeah, um, yeah definitely came as a shock. I think it's, yeah. first of all, thank you for sharing that. I think it's uh, it's so incredible how our lives can change in a, in a split second, you know? And I talk, I talk about my, my crash in 2019, which is interesting because I was 29 when my life kind of got flown upside down too. And although this is completely not relatable to your experience, I think having like lost the ability to use my right arm, I had a severe traumatic brain injury. I couldn't walk for a couple months. I had to relearn a lot of different things. Uh, my brain had to heal as well as like my arm. And then, you know, going into the medical system, it, when you're in a normal, healthy human being, you really don't know what it's like. like even hearing you speak, I can tell like you, you've researched and put so much time right into healing yourself. And that's what I've done too. And so I almost consider myself an expert on a lot of the things having to do with my shoulder, my neck and, and all the things that happened in the crash because I've just read like every paper out there, like trying to heal myself, right? Trying to understand what's going on with me and how to make, you know, hopefully set myself up best possible scenario to heal. And it's interesting though, because b before something like that happens, you kind of just are walking through life, not really knowing much about, you know, really like your own internal health, unless you work, I, I feel like in that sort of space. Right. And a lot of us, I think really take that for granted. I mean, I know I did, I know I took my health for granted. You know, I felt, I felt invincible for you know pretty much all, all my life until I was 29, until I hit the ground at 38 miles per hour. And then I went through one surgery in Flagstaff, coincidentally enough, that went really poorly and I just got my second surgery to correct that. And that, that surgery made things even worse, you know, which I'm sure you can relate to because you've been through a ton of operations yourself and a ton of procedures. So I guess to, to, to back up really quickly, when you first got told about your diagnosis, like how did you heal? How did you not heal? How did you feel at that moment? And how, you know, what was your perception like? Because I definitely want to share my own as far as like when the first doctor told me like what was actually wrong with me from my crash. And I, I'd love to hear from you, you know, since it's, this is something that you don't, I mean, AA, like the, it's the rarity of being an appendix cancer patient, but also the rarity of being diagnosed with something like that when you're 29 and in a very healthy state of your life, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, your, your threshold for trauma I do think there's a there's a line that everyone everyone has a different threshold, right? Yeah. Of what they can of what they can take on before it becomes something that's like traumatic and needs to be then processed and worked through yeah. um, more than just the day to day events. And I think depending on your background, you know that threshold is in different places. If you're competing in high level athletics, if you're pushing yourself mentally and physically, you have um, a higher threshold. Um, for, for pain, for discomfort, um, for challenges in general. And I felt like my threshold, you know, was pretty high, but I think the thing about a trauma threshold is like, once you, once you cross it, it doesn't really matter where it is, but once it's crossed, it's, you know, it's then, um, traumatic and something that needs to be, you know, worked through differently, like I said, than, 
than the rest of your life. And, and yeah, it's, you know, when you get big news like that, um, you know, we, we went into the surgery, not knowing if it was cancer for sure. And the doctor obviously was trying to tell us, you know, all the things that could be besides cancer, trying to be hopeful about it. And when she went in and saw how much the, um, abnormal cells had spread throughout my abdomen. She was certain that it was cancer. She just didn't know what kind. Um, so when she came the first time anyone actually told me to my face that I had cancer was, was shortly after that surgery. Um, so I was still in a little bit of an anesthesia, um, haze. And I kind of remember coming to, and my mom was kind of holding my head and and stroking my hair and and crying. And, and then I kind of came to and was also crying, um, but kind of figuring out why I was crying and asked, asked her what they had to take. And that's when she told me about, um, my new anatomy essentially, um, which is kind of a shocking thing to have your, you know, your own mother who, you know, is, is getting to the age of going through menopause naturally yeah. telling her 30 year old daughter, um, you know, that you would, you're now going to receive instant surgical menopause, they call it. Yeah. And so that was kind of the first banger. And then having the uh, doctor come in and say, you know, and she, um, I'm sure this is like the worst part of her job, yeah. you know, telling people they have cancer. She said, uh, you know, so we, we know it's cancer, right? That was, that was what she said. And and we both kind of nodded, but that was certainly the first time someone okay. told me that. And, and you do, it's, it's an out of body kind of life flashing before your eyes moment where you kind of see the image of all of the big things you've been through in your life and, and your brain starts trying to stack up sort of everything you've lived through and everything you know and everything that's important to you and all the what ifs, all of that comes flooding in um, kind of all at once. And uh, I don't know that there's that that trauma threshold. I don't know that there's a ton we can do um, to really prepare for it. You know, yeah. like I said, I think you can build up your mental and physical resilience to a certain point, but then once you kind of cross into this um, uncharted territory of, of a big diagnosis like that, it's, you don't know how you're going to respond. And so, and that, that became very clear too. And when a lot of people uh, kind of give me feedback on what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm doing to heal, um, what things I've looked into, you know, and, and you can kind of tell, you know, people, Oh, I would, I would never do chemo or, Oh, I would never, you know, it's like, well, are you, you know, are you a single parent and where have you ever been diagnosed with stage four cancer as a single parent with a 18 month old? Because I, I wouldn't say I would never do, you know, Now I'm realizing I've realized a lot through this experience, what is the appropriate way to be with someone who's grieving or going through medical crisis Mm -hmm. or, and I don't think there's like one, one right way, or there's not one right thing to say, um, but there's definitely wrong things to say. (laughs) There's definitely wrong ways to be with someone. I really appreciate you bringing this up. I I wanted to talk about, you know, all the different avenues of care you sought, right? Because you've done a different from integrative medicine to, you know, clinical stuff. I want to talk about this, but let's speak a little bit about what you just brought up. You know, what are some of the ways that you've learned that, you know, maybe you've changed your perspective on how to assist someone or be with someone through their grieving process? Yeah, I think the biggest thing with grief is that uh, it's just important to recognize that there is nothing you can say that's going to make it better. If there's nothing you can say that's going to lessen the load. And so even though your gut instinct is, I want to fix it, I want to make it better, I, um, just acknowledging that that's really not even possible and then kind of giving yourself a break, you know, and then it's better to just be present and and listen and receive. I think grief asks to be witnessed and um, everyone grieves differently and there's no right path or right order of events in the grief process. So, but I think it's important to witness them and 
be present and holding that space. Like I keep holding my arms up like this because that's how it feels. Like you just need to be sort of embraced sometimes physically, but like energetically embraced. Um, and, and then when you are, you know, if you do want to help or do something, um, another helpful thing, instead of how can I help? What do I need? Someone who's going through a total crisis doesn't know what they need. They don't know how to put the left foot in front of the right foot. So being asked by everyone, how can I help? What can I do? Can sometimes just feel overwhelming. Um, so instead saying something like I was either, I was thinking of buying you a blanket or, um, delivering dinner sometime this week, which one would feel more helpful to you? And just sort of, this is what I was planning on doing, or I'd like to come clean your house. I can come over at this time and this time, what time works for you, you know? And just, if you want to do something, just kind of pick something. Cause all of that's really nice and helpful. And the people who kind of went about it that way ended up, you know, really doing, you know, giving the most impact. And, Mm. and I really felt embraced by the community, by my whole community, you know, sending cards, sending, um, gifts, starting a meal train. I mean, the whole thing. And, um, I feel extremely, extremely lucky to have, have all of that. And so, um, yeah, when you find yourself on that side of a person in the community, those are all great things to do. And, I would say just pick one and do it. That, that's a beautiful thing you just shared uh, because, well, one, it's from firsthand perspective from you living through it, but I can I can echo that. I think a lot of times when you're in crisis, especially with health, right? Because when you're, when you're in that, you, you cannot think about anything else because you're just trying to survive. You're literally using all your mental resources, your emotional resources to try to survive, right? And when people give you too many options outside of that from trying to be helpful, often it's in good intention, but you're all your energy is on trying to survive and trying to like stay. And you, you really don't have much capacity to be like, think about what someone else can do to help you. So it really does help if they sort of limit those options and they offer just like, Oh, I can clean your house or I can drop off some dinner. What would be better for you today? Like that, that's, that's really beautiful. I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone explain it like that, but it makes sense in my mind. Cause specifically when you're at your limit with, um, you're just feeling exhausted because this is something that's life changing and it, and it could it could be life ending for many people, right? And so to be real with that, as we recognize that, it's like, you know, we in really wanting to try to help, a lot of times we're trying to soothe ourselves, you know, because we feel really shitty and we don't know what to do. And oftentimes the best way is what is how you just said, Ariel, is like to offer like shorter things, smaller bites of it, versus like putting it all in the other person, be like, hey, what can I do to help? You know, what do you need? Because like you said, many times you don't even you don't even have the time to think about what you need, let alone know what you need, you know? And if you can't think about what you need, you, there's no way you're going to know, right? And so all you're thinking is going into, what do I need to do right now to stay alive? How am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to provide for my, my family, right? These things that are probably like in the forefront of your mind going through a diagnosis like this. Totally, totally. Yeah, and I think it's just important to recognize is is the thing I'm doing or the thing I'm asking, is it coming from a place of... um yeah, making myself feel better because I feel so crappy for them. Or is it really just completely selflessly like, what can I do in this moment to help this person? And people recognize that like saying, how are you, you know, when you've just been diagnosed with cancer, like a question, like, how are you doing is kind of loaded. And I think most people kind of get get that and and struggle with, you know, what to say. And and that's okay to say, I don't even, I don't even know what to say to you. This is, so shocking. And like, that feels good to hear right. because it's like, yeah, f- fuck, I don't know what to say either. It's not related. <laughs> like, it's not relatable it's, for people because they, they really don't know what to say. Right. Unless you're living it, yeah. it's hard to know. Yeah. And just to have them say, I don't, I don't even know what to say, but like, I just want to be in this space with you and just tell you how much it's so, like, it feels good to just have someone who's like, recognizes how crappy this is and, and to be present and, you know, and then maybe questions like, what's the hardest part of this yeah. instead of, how are you? Or like, you know, um, what do you want to talk about? Or, you know, I'm here to listen to anything you want to say and just kind of keeping it open there so that when they're ready to talk about something, they can. I think that was my initial hope when I first messaged you on Facebook, because we don't know each other, you know, personally. But when I had read your writings, when you're writing about, you know, the experience, it just inspired me to reach out and just to connect and be like, hey, uh, you know, I don't remember what I said, but I remember thinking about 
what I was going to write before I was going to write it and be like, I don't want to uh, in any way like undermine your experience, but also acknowledge like the fact that I can like feel it through what you're writing and to just appreciate the fact that like you're here, you're fighting and you're sharing your story with people because there's so many people that experience something like this, whether it's cancer or something else that changes their life and they don't have an outlet. Right. And so they, and oftentimes that outlet is, is what we need to kind of separate ourselves from the experience a little bit. So we can like still live presently, even while suffering, you know, which is hard, hard to say, right. Really hard to do too. But, um, I, I appreciate you saying that because that's certainly something that I think in my mind when I try to relate to others' experience will not, um, you know, will not undercutting what their experience is by saying like, oh yeah, I, I know what you're going through, which which I don't. You know, I, I've had a similar experience, but but very different in a lot of ways too. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so when you yeah. when you went on this journey to to seek treatment, you know, when I was when I've been following you on on social media, it seems like you've been all over the place, right? You've gone to like all these different you know, even with your health background, all these like different integrative medicine clinics, like these sort of specialty clinics for cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like going through all these different things from, you know, whether it's plant medicine or some clinical trial, like what do you feel was the most healing to you? Do you think it was like a combination of everything? Like where were you, I guess, held in the best way? You know, because for so many people that haven't experienced this, I, I have no clue what this is like right? Like I know what I've done. I've called pretty much every person I could think of in the country and in the world to talk about my neck and my shoulder stuff, you know, and, and flown all over the place, spent tons of money, right? But with internal medicine, it's a little bit different, right? With like your own cells. I want to know like from your perspective, what was that like in your mind? Where did you go and why did you go there? Like why did it, you know, where did it come from? Yeah, I think an important thing to remember in all medical discourse and all medical things, whether it's a rare cancer or your regular well, well person exams once a year or whatever, is that um, you need to advocate for yourself. No one is going to advocate for you unless you obviously appoint an advocate. I'd like you to advocate for me. I feel really lucky to have two parents who are both in the medical field. And my mom is like, a low key private investigator, like (laughs) on the computer with, with her just investigative skills in general. And so, um, both to have, to have her be able to speak the medical lingo and make things happen in the medical field quicker than they normally would, because she knows how to kind of work the system that, I mean, that's, was a huge, um, benefit that, that I had that I know not everyone has, but in, general, if you're, you know, not advocating for yourself, no one, no one tells you, especially in a rare situation like this, no one's going to give you, here's the full gamut of options for you. And it's because when you get to rare diseases or rare injuries or things like that, everyone who's involved in your care now is so specialized and has so much education in their specific field. They don't, you can't possibly go 10 layers deep as a, you know, genetic researcher of rare peritoneal diseases and also know what all the holistic options are and what all the, you know, that's not what they study. And so, you have to know that every person you talk to, whether it be a doctor of natural medicine or an, um, just a regular, you know, oncologist or special specialist surgeon, they're speaking through their lens of what they know and what they've studied. And so you can't really take what, what one person says as the full 100% truth or path that's right for you. It's, it's all just opinions based on their um, knowledge base. And it's important to just recognize those opinions for what they are. Um, and you have to piece them together in the way that works best for you. Uh, absolutely. And so, yeah. So my, I quickly got connected with the appendix cancer and peritoneal, um, peritoneal metastases, they call it, um, cancers. They have like a research organization. ACPMP is like the main, 
um, hub for all things appendix cancer. They have a list of doctors, specialists around the country and around the world. Um, they have a lot of just resources, videos, articles, and um, and then there's a Facebook support group that has about maybe 5,000 of us from all over the world. And people are actually really active on that site and asking a lot of questions, talking about everything from the people who are newly diagnosed to the people who are 20 years out from this diagnosis. So there's tons of information there, um, being able to talk to other, other people who are going through the same thing. And so it became clear to us, we need to get paired up with a specialist, um, being in Flagstaff, as you know, there was, there was one oncologist up until I think now there's two oncology clinics since I left, but, um, you know, there's one oncologist in Flagstaff. So he deals with, you know, breast cancer mostly because right. everyone has breast cancer. Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And so we, consulted with a few different specialists kind of in our region, one in Nebraska, one in San Diego, and one in Salt Lake City, which is where I am now. Um, now we've moved here. And so, uh, you know, got a second opinion, third opinion, had to send all of my imaging, all of my labs to all of these doctors, which I think for, you know, someone who's not in the medical field or doesn't have anyone close to them in the medical field, that can take a long time to get everything sent over, to get an appointment, um, to figure out how to pay. I mean, those, those things are really tough to do unless you know how to keep pushing and work the system. And so I feel um, lucky that we've all been kind of a team in my family to make those things happen. And uh, yeah. Uh on the note of being like being your own advocate, you know, that's one thing I struggled with, you know, after I crashed, I had a severe brain injury and my partner at the time left like three weeks after she just couldn't handle because it would like, change my personality almost in instantaneously. And that was one of the things I, I struggled with even through therapy and working through like the PTSD from the initial, let's say diagnosis or crash experience was like uh, letting go of the fact that I really couldn't like fend for myself then I've always taken care of myself right at a very young age until like I, my brain was not functioning correctly like so I'd go and meet with these doctors and complain on what what was going on but as you said like they were just focused on what what was in their scope of practice and that's at some place I think modern medicine really needs to expand because I can hold space for someone being a specialist absolutely but if we're not looking at the integrity of the entire problem then we're really not helping people heal we're merely just like putting a band-aid on one thing and Although we do need specialists for specific issues, most of the time, like there's so much interconnectivity within what we're experiencing inside and outside, there's other pieces to this puzzle, right? And most of the time that's put on the patient or the experiencer and not on the person that's trying to help them heal, you know? And I've experienced that, yeah. uh, like, you know, I've met with probably 20 surgeons since my last surgery, some of the best that work with like some of the best professional teams all over the country. And the majority of them, you know, saw a very complex, uh, procedure that had already been kind of failed and they were really scared to go in and operate and they would kind of give me these different excuses until I met this gentleman here in San Diego who was like no man I think I can do this pretty simply it's gonna it's gonna you know be another recovery but I think it'll it'll alleviate a lot of the things that are going on you know and it's gonna be pretty low risk based on what I'm gonna do and I think sometimes it just takes a person that really is able to sit there and listen to you and try to piece together the puzzle with you you know and I've seen I've done so many different therapeutic modalities from dry needle and acupuncture to red laser therapy to all these different things right um mostly because it's just been on my shoulders like it's been like if I don't do this you know I'm just going to go in and get another surgery and it's going to turn out the exact same way right and yeah. it's interesting that yeah. as a as an experiencer from like the person that's trying to heal you know I completely agree with you like you have to kind of use every bit of energy in your body to be your best advocate and to know that just because someone goes to school for something like it doesn't mean that they know what you are experiencing they don't know they're not in your body and so you know that's another thing is like i don't just blatantly trust everyone with a degree i ask them uh you know inquisitorial questions based on what they're talking about because a lot of times they'll, they'll say something and they'll just be like okay this is what you have and i'm like well, wait a minute i'm experiencing these other things too so there's other things going on that's related to that, and that might not be the main issue. You know, I think it's maybe a little different. Right, but. right. And and it's important to remember, like you said, like what their specialty is. Like my my surgeon here, I feel really grateful. She's not only a specialist surgeon for appendix cancer patients, and one of the biggest um, voices recently, you know, in our region and in our country, you know, speaking to appendix cancer and treatment. 
Um, but she also has a second focus in palliative care, which means palliative care weighs quality of life with other invasive procedures, essentially like palliative care asks, what is the best thing for this person? And sometimes that's not always treatment. Sometimes it's stopping treatment. And so she's very hesitant to do surgery unless it's indicated that she can make a positive difference in their quality of life. Like if they're already in a place where she's like, yeah, I could perform this surgery, but weighing what it would take for you to recover from this massive surgery um, versus, you know, waiting it out right now and maybe doing some chemo, you know? So I feel grateful that I have a surgeon who really looks and and weighs those options and doesn't just want to go in and do surgery right away. Um, And, you know, she's actually one of my biggest advocates now for, uh, or just cheerleaders for taking a chemo break um, because I'm not having all of my biopsies are now coming back negative and, and we'll obviously get to that yeah. too. But, um, but yeah, and we've, you know, with the natural doctors and the other people we've talked to along the way, there's been a lot of people that were a no, yeah. a, a big fat no. I mean, people who were borderline offensive and said things that was were shocking that a doctor would even say and so we've had kind of we've talked with people all over the spectrum you know really um top level specialist doctors um who are maybe a little more intense and then doctors who are a little you know softer and more receptive Mm -hmm. and then um people in between who you know i don't want to call anyone a quack but who (laughs) you shouldn't be practicing (laughs) medicine yeah you know, who, who are like, you know, you just need to drink green juice and you just need to, you know, kind of all the standard like anti-cancer things right. you hear, you know, eliminate sugar, you know, drink green juice. And they start kind of listing off these things, which I can appreciate that there's some evidence behind these things, you know, eating vegan or whatever. But also that's still not an individualized plan. Right. And I have a rare cancer. And most oncologists who work with surgeon or who work with cancer all the time will not even see appendix cancer because that's how rare it is. Right. So then when you go to a naturopath or someone who's maybe I'm a naturopath, but I specialize in oncology, even them, I mean, the likelihood of them coming across an appendix cancer patient ever is still pretty low. Yep. Um, so I, knowing that going in, you, you kind of have to know, you know, if this person comes in super confident, I'm already kind of leery Um, versus a doctor who comes in and says like, here's what I know to be true. What do you know to be true? And how does this fit with your belief system and with what you believe is going on in your body? Because especially someone like me, like I don't, and I'm sure you feel this way too. It's like when someone starts talking at you about your own body yep. when you feel like you already have such a deep connection with yep. your body. It's, you know, you don't yep. like to be told, well, you, <laughs> told about your body that you feel like, you know, best. You really shouldn't be. And I think uh, I really appreciate you saying that because that, that was one of the indicating factors in me choosing this, this most recent surgeon is he was the first one since the first surgery that uh, really ruined my arm where he sat down and he was like, he listened to me and he's like, like this dude's been a prothy for 10 years. He knows what he's talking about, you know? And he's like, I think you're right. You know, that was the first thing. He's like, I think you're exactly right with what's going on. He's like, you have a fracture in your coracoid. It was caused by the past surgery. He drilled two holes and he was supposed to be drill one. Your coracoid fractured and it's basically causing a ton of pain in your neck and in your arm. And he's like, and I'm sorry you've been living like this for two and a half years and no one's helped you. You know, they went in there and then they spent double the time they were supposed to because he saw so much shit that was going on based on the first surgery that I got in Flagstaff. My bicep tendon had ripped off my coracoid that was fractured. There were all these other things that I got so many MRIs and scans and not one person told me this stuff. You know, maybe they didn't see it or also maybe they just didn't want to deal with the problem because there was a lot of problems going on, you know? Um, and I think that, yeah. you know, you, you speak worlds to this because my, my life, obviously physical life wasn't depending on it, but I feel like I, I got to a point where like I did not believe I could heal anymore because I've tried everything. Like I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying of my own money outside of insurance. That's a whole nother problem in the system that we live in in the US, right? On trying to heal myself and so many amazing people trying to help me. But in, until my body was ready to heal because of how uh, 
it just wasn't in the proper state to heal based on the past surgery. And it had to be put in that state based on like my biomechanics and where everything is located to heal. Otherwise, everything I was throwing at it was really just a bandit. It was just helping for like a week, helping for a couple of days, helping for, you know, maybe a month. And then it would come right back to homeostasis, which in my in, in my body from the house surgery was, was shit. It was awful. Like things, you know, were so different. Everything was not functioning. I was in pain all the time. Um, and it's interesting because it, it goes so much of a long way when someone with a medical degree can sit down and be like, you are the expert in your own body. Like, yes. tell me what's going on. Yeah. Right. It like gives you, it gives you hope. And like you said, like you can throw the kitchen sink at it, yep. but if you don't really believe that what you're doing, like if you believe the power of prayer is going to heal you yeah. and you believe that with every fiber in your being, that that is all you need. The likelihood of that being true, I think is a lot higher yeah. than someone who gets prayed for right. equally as much, but thinks, you know, it's not, and it's, it's true with any kind of healing. I mean, there's so many things you can throw at it, but you know, I'm doing a Chinese medicine protocol and I don't like to advertise it too much. I mean, my, my biopsies are coming back negative. Do I think that that's why? I, I don't know for, I can't say for sure. I'm doing a lot. I've done a lot of things along the way. So was it the combination of everything? Is it what I'm doing now? I don't know. But the reason I don't advertise it too much is because if people are kind of like, you know, I don't know about that, but I'll try it. I'm like, it's kind of an expensive thing to just try yeah. if you don't really believe in it. Right. Like you want to, and it's like what you said about your doctor saying, I think you're exactly right. Just the way you said that, I'm like, I like this guy. I yeah. like this doctor, you know, to have someone acknowledge, you know, doesn't this, if, does this resonate with you? Does this feel right to you? Yeah. And if you're both kind of like, yeah, and you're, you know, on the same page, I think the opportunity for healing just gets increased, yeah. you know, versus, you know, having, <clears throat> having a discussion where you don't quite understand everything. Yeah. And maybe if you don't feel empowered to ask all the questions or you don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. If you, once again, it just comes back to that. If you're not, if you're not advocating for yourself, you really kind of give up the responsibility to whoever you're asking them, yeah. you know, and, and for some people that that is the right option. Some people don't want to take responsibility for, um, for their own health, yeah. because then if something goes wrong, it's no one's fault. Yeah but their own, you know, versus if you're following a doctor, you know, and, and something goes wrong, well, it's, you know, someone else's fault. And certainly sometimes it is other people's fault. I'm not saying right. that's not a possibility, but, uh, you know, it's just important to, um, you know, I think if you're serious about it, you know, really do your own research and, yep. and come up with your own path for healing. It, it yeah. brings up this idea of like creating community is, is such a big thing. In, in any aspect of healing, right? And I wanted to ask you because it, for me, it's been like I have multiple different doctors involved, multiple different like uh, natural paths and different healers, let's say, for, that work in different sort of integrative aspects that have all come together and not, they don't really all communicate because they all have their other patients and they have, but I'm kind of the thing that's linking them all together, right? But outside of that, I also, a huge thing for me was connecting with people who have lived through similar experiences. So I didn't feel alone. Right. Um, did you were you able to connect with people that have experienced like appendix cancer, too, or other cancer patients? Because I know that's a that's a huge thing for most people to have people that actually do know what it's like to a certain extent of experiencing what you're going through. Yeah, definitely. There's um, a nonprofit group called PMP Pals. So PMP is an acronym for I'm not even going to attempt to say it, but it's like a Latin word for the peritoneal metastases okay. group, um, which is typically mostly appendix cancers. Um, so PMP pals is the name of the group and they have twice a week zoom calls, um, throughout most of the year. And then they do a once a year meetup where they have doctors come and do, um, present on different topics relating to appendix cancer and treatment. And then there's also just kind of, it's a social gathering for, for, appendix cancer patients and survivors and their caregivers and, um, to come get information and, and to meet other patients. So, and that was actually in San Diego this year. So it was a night, you know, nice to, um, get out and kind of make a vacation of it. Um, and so that group has been great. And, and 
like you said, not just not only with people who you can talk to, you know, you just can hop on the call and start talking about like the consistency of your poop and it's no big deal because you're all <laughs> like in this together. Um, but also people who are checking up on you and they they have different programs where when you go to the hospital for a big surgery, they send you um, a teddy bear like in the hospital from your PMP pals and they have a card writing group that, you know, when you're first diagnosed or if you're going through a hard time, I've just gotten like a manila envelope filled with cards written by different survivors and I open one anytime I'm having a hard time and and so you feel like, yeah, all of a sudden it's this like social club that you didn't ask to be part of, but you're really grateful exists because there's this family of people who are checking up on you and know, you know, kind of know what's going on. And um, it doesn't feel as as tiring, um, I guess, as it can feel when you're just trying to talk to your friends or talk to other people who are close to you and catching them up and um trying to make sense of things. And and that's part of the reason I write, write about my experience is because it's too tiring to update everyone with the same story, right. uh, you know, over and over again, as I'm sure you can relate to, uh, you know, it's helpful to kind of keep talking about it. So the people close to, you know, yep. where you're at and absolutely. Um, yeah. How did, or how do you think being a parent affected your response in order to heal yourself? You know, do you think that I'm guessing that that was probably a factor in like how much you've done to get to this point? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, and I, that's where like when people say things, uh, you know, like, oh, I'd never do chemo or things like that. It's like, you know, yeah, if I didn't have a kid, I might be like naked in Costa Rica drinking ayahuasca right. and just like skydiving, right. and, right. <laughs> you know, right. like just YOLO going for it. And then when you have another human being you're responsible for and want to be around to witness growing and growing up, you're, it made me not ready to look an, uh, an oncologist, a regular, you know, Western medicine doctor in the eyes and go, "Mm, that's what you want me to do. I'm, I'm just going to try my own thing and not do that. You know, it's, you just don't, I don't feel didn't feel comfortable saying that. Um, but I knew I was going to take an integrative approach no matter what, um, with, you know, more holistic medicine, however that looked and then, um, doing chemo as well. And we did a lot of things that didn't work out so well in the beginning, or I did some things that felt like it resonated at first. And then as I was going through, like I did a whole bunch of high dose vitamin C, um, infusions. I did a protocol where you take, um, old pharmaceutical drugs and the combination of, of these different drugs is like an anti-parasitic and anti, um, an antibiotic and like metformin and like one other drug. And it was supposed to block the cancer's metabolic pathway. And we read about that. And and I did that for a while. Um, I went to a naturopath in Flagstaff who focused on oncology and took a slew of supplements from them. And, um, and so I did a, you know, did a lot of things in, in the beginning, um, just like I said, kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it before you kind of get in a groove and, and, um, figure out, you know, actually this doesn't feel like it's working so well for me. I know I fasted, um, my first chemo round, I was told that fasting can help minimize the effects of chemo. And I think for a lot of people it, it can, but, um, for me, I just don't do well with fasting ever. I've never done well with not eating enough calories. In fact, when I, when I am low on calories or my blood sugar's low, I, I feel ill. And so that first chemo round was the absolute worst because I fasted all the way. And I was like, okay, not doing that again, uh, you know, after the side effects and yeah. So I, I think, um, having a child, you know, you, it makes everything that every decision that you make, more feel more dramatic and more there's someone else's life on the line too is how it feels um besides just 
just my own. And I think the guilt factor piles on a lot harder, um, too, with just being a single mom and needing so much help with him and, um, and then feeling like, okay, if I'm not doing everything I can in every single moment that contributes to my healing, like if I do anything that's not like directly contributing to my healing, you have this sense of, of guilt. And I've had to really work through that where, you know, it's not good to feel guilty all the time and, and, or at all, you know, and that needs to be worked through because that can accumulate and, and cause problems as well. And I'm a big believer that our emotions and our mental state and all of that plays, um, equally, if not more of a role, um, in our health, just like what we eat and how we move or don't move or, um, you know, all of that. And so I knew going in, I was going to have to address all of those things, how I'm moving, how I'm eating, what supplements I'm taking. Um, yeah. And so having a, being a parent just kind of magnifies all those decisions. Yeah. What were some of the practices you developed over this entire like experience that helped you regulate your mental and emotional health, you know, so you could, you could still be present and somewhat feel good while you're going through this physically. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like in the, you know, in the beginning, um, I'm, so I'm, I've always been the type of person who like muscles through everything. Like I like to lift heavy weights. I like to do extreme sports. My dad's kind of an extremist as a human being. And then also in his athletic endeavors were super competitive family. Um, and so that's always been kind of my mentality is like, if you flex hard enough and you keep pushing, you'll get through anything. And what cancer, one of the many lessons cancer has taught me is like, you know, whatever the main thing was like, whatever you're doing up until this point got me here with a cancer diagnosis. Like no matter how healthy I seemed or thought I was, whatever I was doing. And, and was it just a genetic mistake and a mix between environmental toxins and all of these things out of my control? Yeah, it, it could have been, but also, you know, the environment, the ecosystem in my body made it possible for cancer to grow. Right. And so in order to heal from that, I would need to change the whole ecosystem in my body. And, um, and I think that's something different and rare as far as what I can see, you know, in the cancer community, a lot of people just, like I said, you know, they want the surgeon to cut it out. They want chemo to get rid of it. They want, you know, but the thing is, if we zap it out and we cut it out and all of these things, the, if the ecosystem is the same, then we haven't really, you know, changed the, that environment yep. where it can grow. So then, um, after surgery, obviously my body changed a lot and continues to change, um, with having all of my, those organs removed. And, um, certainly the way I was moving before was too, too much for me at that time. And so I've been leaning a lot more into, um, my yoga and meditation and just really listening to like, how does my body want to move? It kind of removed that sense of, of competition, even with, even within myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's how the movement practices changed. And then, um, I always too used to just kind of buy supplements. This is kind of embarrassing. Um, but I, there was a supplement company that I was, uh, that I was partnered with in, in Wisconsin and they had this sale rack on their supplement like a supplement aisle that was like 50% off, 70% off, 90% off. And I would just be like, Oh, like this is good for my brain health. I'll take this. And this is good for my hair. And I'll take that. And like, I would take so many supplements and like, Mm -hmm. I would know generally what they were. Like I would never take something that I had no idea what it was. And I was just taking it because the bottle told me, you know, but was I being overseen by, you know, a professional, an herbalist or someone who's a professional there who can tell me like, oh, maybe like you should cycle taking echinacea. Like you don't need to take echinacea all year round. Maybe you should take it more in the wind, you know, like more specific things like that or what not to take together. So 
that changed in that I was now seeking out people who had experience, you know, with herbs or with specific supplements as they relate to oncology patients and kind of like revamped my whole supplement closet. Um, and like I said, you know, have tried a few different things along the way. And now I'm on a, a Chinese medicine protocol and taking Chinese herbs. Um, and yeah, what else did I change? And then I, I've done 25 rounds of chemo. Wow. So I've been getting chemo every other week for over a year. Wow. Um, and had my last round about, uh, just over a month ago. And, um, and then have also had multiple surgeries and was actually involved in a clinical trial recently. Um, that's a, a surgery where they infuse high pressure chemotherapy straight into the abdomen. And so I was doing, um, those procedures alongside everything. And, and like you said, like you're the, you're the navigator of your own, you're your own medical navigator. No one's putting that together for you. Um, I hope my doctors aren't listening to this, but I wouldn't tell my Western medicine doctors everything that I was taking because I know all they would say is we can't advise you on that. You should probably not take it because we don't know how it interacts with stuff. So I knew that a lot of the things I was taking was going to, we're going to have to be on my own terms. And, and I've kept it that way. Um, even the Chinese medicine, protocol I'm on, which most of Chinese medicine are herbs, barks, roots, you know, they're plants. It's from plants. It's not, you know, these man-made pharmaceutical things. So at least I felt more like, okay, I'm taking more of like food supplements versus, um, versus other things. So, um, yeah, now now I go meet with a Chinese medicine doctor um, up in Portland, and I meet with him every four or five months, and um, and he tests he tests the medicines that he's giving me with my biology um, using an electro acupuncture machine that um, sort of tests like the resonancy, like the frequencies of these different medicines with um, my my body specifically. So it feels very individualized. Um, even though I'm not a, you know, student of acupuncture, student of Chinese medicine, the little bits that I do know really make sense for me, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, I feel like that way about a lot of things, you know, I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist, but do I, follow a lot of, um, you know, uh, Buddhist teachings and right. things. Yeah, I, I totally do. Cause a lot of them totally make sense yep. to me. And so, yep. Agreed. yeah, it really, um, resonates, resonates with me at this time. And, and this is what I've settled on for now. And now that my biopsies are coming back negative and we can take a break from chemo, this will be the real test of like, am I changing my ecosystem yeah. so that cancer can no longer thrive? And the fact that he spoke to that too, the, the Chinese medicine doctor, I knew I was in the right place because he's like, you know, I'm going to give you herbs that support chemo in doing its thing, support your body from recovering from surgeries, but also are changing your biology mm. so that you don't have this cancer grow back mm. again. And and he says, you know, you want to, will want to be on some kind of aggressive protocol for probably about five years to really change and and that made sense to me like as a personal trainer when people come and go i want to lose 20 pounds right away yeah. it's like all right yeah. you know or do you, you know or do you want to change your whole lifestyle and be a person who's you know you know more fit or stronger whatever whatever your goals are you know people need to recognize that any kind of lifestyle change takes time and Absolutely. and so to hear the doctor say that too i knew you know, this, this feels right. You know, it's, it's so spot on. And I think that the the thing that sticks out the most is the fact that you've really had to invest like a long game approach to this, right? Because so many people, I mean, even we've talked about like emotional healing too, it's like people just want to feel better. So they're looking for a pill to sort of, you know, calm their ups, calm their down. So that way they can sort of numb out a lot of the things. And I think 
you know, that can be okay for uh, an intermittent period if we really need to kind of take a little bit of the burden off ourselves to get through something. But really, if we're looking at long-term healing, whether it's physical, emotional, or intellectual, it's exactly that. It's a long-term approach to, you know, changing your ecosystem, right? Whether that's an emotional ecosystem or a physical ecosystem. And most of the time they're interrelated and correlated, you know, are there like out of all the things that you've done, what are the things that that you've done health wise that you think have made the biggest impact? And you could, it could be three, five things, it's, you know, but on your mind, what are the things that you've like, yeah, this has definitely made an impact in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And to go, yeah, to piggyback off of, of, of um, your question previously to like mental, emotional, yeah. what mental, emotional things have I changed? Um, a lot of what you read about with how cancers develop, especially ones focused in the GI system, um, the intestines, your gut, right, is kind of like it's where um a lot of grief can be stored. Um, grief is like a big word that comes up when you're looking at like more like energy medicine, talk about mental, emotional things and, and forgiveness, um, not harboring negative feelings towards people. Um, I mean, you, people joke about like, Oh, you're going to like, give me a stomach ulcer or something, you know, but that's like a real thing because when you (laughs) harbor this like (laughs) negative energy your body's always listening and so whatever you're putting in it's responding to that and so um i think one of the biggest things that's helped me is um then that we talk about this in meditation at all a lot just how to step back and notice what's going on without this attachment to it being good or bad or being so so I'm very good at being really hard on myself. I think we're all our own worst critics. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, that, um, kind of, uh, that guilt, that guilt feeling that comes up with, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing everything I can to heal. I'm, you know, kind of that negative self talk, um, Instead of being like, I shouldn't think like that. Oh, that's bad. You know, just noticing that. Oh, there's me shitting on myself again. Okay. Noticing that. Just being able to step back and, okay, I'm noticing I'm really angry right now. Instead of, you know, I am angry. You know, well, I don't, I'm not anger. I'm feeling anger. I'm expressing anger. I'm expressing frustration. Um, but I don't have to embody all of those negative feelings. It can just be part of the human experience. And, um, and one thing I did pretty early on is, is forgive. I had, you know, I don't feel like I have a lot of enemies in my life. I certainly had some people that I needed to clear the air with. And I did that pretty quickly, um, in the beginning. And, and I think cause anything you read on the energy medicine side of things will, you know, trigger these memories and people in your life who you're like, there's still something there that I need to clear up. And, and those people actually, some of them reached out to me too, when they heard about my diagnosis, it was like, okay, let's like be sure just in case, just in case you die, that we're in a good place. (laughs) I mean, isn't it interesting though, how like it takes death to sort of bring us back to compassion and empathy sometimes you know really it's because Mm -hmm. we fight over these trivialities and not that being hurt isn't a real thing in life it's just that that shit really seems to be a lot smaller when we look at the end of the road you know Mm -hmm. and and oftentimes you know you can find a lot more forgiveness and space for someone when you know you realize that you don't have an infinite amount of time to avoid it right right and then letting go of the outcome like yes giving it your best shot knowing you're, you're in it with the right intention and giving, giving it your best. And then saying, I've done enough. Like I'm giving it, I'm giving it my best now. Like there was one person who I, who I knew I needed to forgive. And it it was like, they weren't even asking for, or like apologizing. It was almost like, I don't even need you to apologize. I just need you to know that I forgive you yeah. <laughs> for my own healing. It's for yourself. Selfishly. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with you. Yep. <laughs> I just, yep. you know, 100%. need to tell you that you don't even have to apologize, but I forgive you. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and so I think just, it's really 
helped me to slow down and to remember what's important. And I think I was, you know, doing that in some respect having, you know, after you have a child, it, it shifts your whole personality and, and the way that you go about your, your business in the world, becoming a parent. Um, but all of those little worries and anxieties, um, you know, and it's, it sounds cliche, but they're just little things that really don't matter. And, yeah. And, and we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. And I think people are hard on themselves, like something big happens and then they live like that for a while. They're able to really see what's important. And I think it's important to remember, like that is a daily practice. And if you're not practicing that sense of like gratitude for the small things and, and if you don't have some kind of practice, then it's just going to kind of dissolve and, and go in the backseat and you're just going to fall back to whatever your natural habits are with the way that you think. And so, you know, if you want to change, you have to actively be making changes, even if it's just one small thing every day. Beautiful. So, so, so so well said, um, you know, where can people, well, first I want to, I want to say thank you for coming on Ariel. This has been incredible. I want to have you on again because I feel like we, we have so much more to talk about and I want to be cautious of your time as well too. Um, where can people connect with you at? Where can they follow you know, your journey at where can they read your writing and how can they donate too? Cause I know you've had a couple different things pop up, right? Cause I'm sure like your, your medical stuff is, is incredible. N- knowing myself and my, my stuff's probably not even a fraction of what you've spent. It's just, it, it piles up, right? Insurance covers so much. So can you give us a little bit about how we can support and then also, you know, where we can connect with you? Yeah. Um, I'd say my Instagram has links to, um, my caring bridge site is where I, um, post all of my medical updates. Um, and that's linked on my Instagram. So my Instagram is the roaring soul roaring. So R O A R I N G. And it has underscores between each word. So the roaring soul, and that has my, um, email on there as well. And my caring bridge. And then, um, if you kind of follow those, links. There's also a link to, um, my Venmo is on there. I'm closing my GoFundMe. Um, I've had it open for over a year now. And and like I said, I think a lot of my big things have been covered and I felt like I, I was seeing so many things happen to other people and other GoFundMes that I I was like, all right, I need to (laughs) let the giving, um, be spread. Um, but I, I do appreciate, appreciate any support and financial support or just following along comments, you know, positive, encouraging comments are always welcome. And, um, but I would say that's the best place to kind of the hub for all of my contact info. Awesome. I'll throw a link to all of that in the show notes, everybody. Um, Ariel, thank you so much for spending some time with me and, uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back on and chat more about this. And I hope that you continue to receive good news and you continue to heal. And again, thank you just for inspiring me um, today, just all the stuff you, you, you shared, it's not just relative, relative to, to fighting cancer, but to being alive, I really think into thriving. And that's just such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love to love to chat again. That sounds good. I wish people could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame and, so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Everything you gain in life will rot and fall apart, and all that will be left of you is what was in your heart. And